0: This is Someone Like Me, in Slavery Tennessee's podcast, working to educate listeners about the realities of human trafficking and empower survivors of this crime by telling their stories. I'm Leslie, your host. Over the course of this podcast, we've talked to experts about the healing process for survivors, red flags to be looking for to help trafficking victims. We've heard survivor stories, and we've even talked to those in the court system working with survivors of the crime. One side of the conversation we haven't heard yet is that of law enforcement. Law enforcement plays such a key role in preventing trafficking as officers come in direct contact with many of the women and men who are being exploited as it's happening. This piece of the puzzle is important to understand, and today we begin a two-part series talking directly with officers and agents working to fight human trafficking in the state of Tennessee. I've been so looking forward to getting this perspective. These folks are working tirelessly to make a difference in the lives of survivors from a particular angle. In Slavery Tennessee has a unique perspective on this outlook as the CEO, Margie Quinn, is a retired TBI agent and not only originated the human trafficking unit in the state, but led the charge for many years to change laws and systems related to trafficking. So in this episode, Margie and her former colleague, TBI agent Jason Wilkerson, join producer Stacey Elliott and myself in the In Slavery Tennessee offices to share how trafficking is handled in the state of Tennessee. As a note, please use discretion while listening. This particular episode has some adult subject matter and may be triggering for some. We want to note a couple items about this episode. First, Margie makes mention of our seventh episode in season one with survivor, Nicole, who was a very large part of the TBI's work in building their defense against trafficking in Tennessee. You can find episode seven at enslaverytn.org podcast. And the second Tennessee Bureau of Investigation's official website, ithas2stop.com, has tons of helpful information about this crime in the state of Tennessee. So to learn more, you can go to that site. Again, that's ithastostop.com. Well, we always like to start with some would you rather questions to kind of break the
1: ice. Stacy's gonna kick us off. Would you rather be Batman? Or Sherlock Holmes when solving a case? I'm going to let my nerd fall out right here.
2: If you truly understand the history of Batman, you would know
1: uh, that go Batman on.
2: and Sherlock Holmes have a lot more in common than what you would think. Batman was a true detective. Batman went to the FBI Academy.
0: Batman went to the... Wayne, the true
2: history, yes. Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Wayne, Wayne. Oh, went yeah. to the FBI yeah, Academy. That, that was, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. My nerd fell down. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> 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 they didn't cover that in the Christopher
3: Nolan films. Oh, no,
2: no, no. You have to get into the lore. You went to
3: Ra's al Ghul. So well, that was did before that, 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 Ra's al Ghul?
2: Uh, uh, yes, that was after.
3: I'm on Baker Street. I'm Ooh. Sherlock Holmes yeah. all the way. Okay. <laughs> Representation. I am Baker sides. Street all the way. Absolutely.
1: Mm. I love that. I'm so glad I asked that question. That a That's good a good, question. good one. Let's see. Would you rather... Live a life of unhappiness or uncertainty.
2: Uncertainty.
1: I had a feeling that would be your answer. Man of joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, so I have another one for you, Marjorie, that okay. I think will be quite interesting to hear your answer based on what we're dealing with today. Would you rather live without the internet or without air conditioning and heating? <laughs> without the internet. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Mm. Maybe if I didn't live in the South, maybe I lived in an area with a little more temperate climate. Mm -hmm. You know, I could live without that, but not in the South. Mm -hmm. You've
2: lived without the internet before.
3: Yes, exactly. (laughs) You know how that works. My 14-year-old might say something different, but I lived for a long time without the internet. so That was a little bit easy. Okay, let's do a harder
1: one. Okay, this is for both of you. Would you rather have had... In Slavery, Tennessee opened several branches in other states or have it open
3: several branches in other countries? I would say other states. I think domestic trafficking looks so different than international trafficking. True.
2: Same. Other countries, again, I'm going to kind of think about which countries we're talking about. And that would look way, way different depending upon what country you went to. But uh, I think it'd be more predictable to see it. And I know what enslavery can do. I know what the resources are. I know the model. I know that model will work in other states unquestionably. But to put it in other countries where they've got different laws, uh, different problems with corruption, and trafficking looks so different there. Do they need NGOs there? Absolutely. You know, 100%. But I'd rather see it here.
1: Yeah, you're right. It looks really different. But I think a lot of people do think about human trafficking still as predominantly in other countries, which is probably another reason why we need to have it here. Mm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, you guys.
0: Thanks for playing along. Thank you, Stacey. Well, we have Jason Wilkerson, Margie Quinn. What I would love is if each of you could start by saying your name and your background and your current role.
2: My name is Jason Wilkerson. I am a special agent with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm currently assigned to the Human Trafficking Unit at TBI. I've been with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation for over 20 years, career law enforcement officer. Before TBI, I worked for a sheriff's department here in Rutherford County. And before that, I worked my way through college as a dispatcher with the University Police Department.
0: Hmm. So how long have you been in the human trafficking unit, TBI?
2: 2015, six years, five years.
3: All right. Margie? So my name is Margie Quinn, and I am the current CEO at End Slavery Tennessee. I have been in that role since June 1st of 2019. I retired from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and when I retired in 2018, I was the assistant special agent in charge, and one of the areas that I concentrated on was human trafficking. Jason and I have worked together and known each other for over 20 years. We worked drug enforcement together, and we worked trafficking together for about five years. And so it's been a great ride. It's been a great switch, I think, from law enforcement to Mm. victim services. I'm
0: so excited to have both of you with your history together, but then with your history in this specific subject we're talking about. And Margie, you actually helped build that human
3: trafficking unit. Is that right? So in 2010, the legislature passed a public chapter, and they called for a quantitative and qualitative overview of human trafficking in the state. And they felt like they probably needed to pass more laws, strengthen the laws here in Tennessee around trafficking, but they weren't quite sure what to do. And so they decided to study the problem first. And I give the the General Assembly great credit for starting that way. And what precipitated that? You know, I think right around... 2008, 2009, we really started to hear a lot about trafficking. The state law that prohibited trafficking in its current form was passed by the General Assembly in 2007. The TVPA, which is the Trafficking for Victims Protection Act, passed the United States Congress in 2000. So this has really been an effort 20 years in the making. So it was about 2009, 2010 that the General Assembly said, you know what, we probably need to do more. And so they looked at the TBI to conduct that research. Within the TBI, that landed on my desk. I was the Amber Alert Coordinator for the state for 11 years. I was over the Missing Children's Clearinghouse. We were starting to understand around 2007, 2008, that some of Tennessee's missing children were being trafficked,
0: mm.
3: according to the legal definition. Which, again... Legal definition, can we just really briefly explain what you mean by that? Sure. So trafficking occurs when a person over the age of 18 engages in a commercial sex act by means of force, fraud, or coercion. So with an adult, you have a commercial sex act and you have force, fraud, or coercion. If the person is under the age of 18, All you have to prove is that a commercial sex act occurred. So the government doesn't prove force, fraud, or coercion. A minor can't consent. And so those, I think, clarify for us what trafficking is, what commercial sex is, which is sex act where something of value is exchanged. And value could be money, drugs, guns, rent, Mm. shelter, clothing, food. Anything of value in exchange for sex makes it a commercial sex act. And so when the General Assembly asked the TBI, and then that came to me, we partnered with Vanderbilt Center for Community Studies. So I had some PhD candidates, I had some master's candidates at Vanderbilt who we all formed a team, and we designed a research method in order to study trafficking in the state. We did a county-by-county, all 95-county, in-depth survey to law enforcement, Department of Children's Services, guardians ad litem, juvenile court clerks lots of folks that could speak to whether or not there was trafficking occurring. And when we sent out this big survey, we asked folks, hey, answer these questions based on this technical definition of trafficking. Not mm. what not what you think trafficking is, mm-hmm. but this definition of trafficking. And so the results that we got back were just far more than we had anticipated. There was a second component to the research, which is we did focus group meetings in each grand division of the state where we brought together subject matter experts, victim services, counselors, therapists, law enforcement, and we posed the same five or eight questions to this group of experts, and we reported out the anecdotal information that came out of those focus group meetings. And then the third component of this research were actual case studies. So we would lay out a case where a child had been trafficked in the state of Tennessee. And we could prove that through documents and prosecution and other means. And so this was called a mixed methods research report. It was the first of its kind in the United States. I will say that a number of other states have replicated that same methodology and reached much the same conclusions that the state of Tennessee had. In that initial report back to the legislature in 2011, we were able to report that trafficking was occurring in 85% of Tennessee's counties. Okay. 78% were reporting the presence of juvenile sex trafficking, so the sex trafficking of our kids. And yet, 78% of those who responded to the survey, and we had over 3,000 respondents, 96% of law enforcement responded to the survey. So those are huge numbers when you talk about yeah. the validity and reliability of, of research. So when 78% of those who respond say they don't think their agencies are adequately trained to recognize or identify a case of trafficking, and yet we still were getting 85% of counties reporting the presence, we felt like it's occurring and it's occurring in a much greater numbers than we could have possibly anticipated and it was pretty shocking. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, Margie, I remember reading that, and I didn't have uh, any idea that that was part of what you did. So this has kind of been fun to just hear, oh, I remember that. And I'll tell you some of the stuff that was most poignant for me when I first read it was that anecdotal information. Hearing the quotes from the people from interdisciplinary places was so important because you got a, a bigger picture of how people perceived trafficking. And I think that's changed a lot too, because I think I remember, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some people even said, it's not that bad. Right. Maybe it's happening here. Um, And I think now with more information, I think that would be very different. If you did that same kind of survey today, I would guess every county would come back with,
3: yes, we have Right When I I first started going out and training and talking about the results of this research across the state, that's exactly what I said. Hmm. I said, if you ask me, I could probably prove to you that trafficking occurs in 100% of our counties. We just don't recognize it as trafficking. We think of it as child abuse, child rape, familial abuse. And I had a chief when we were going around and doing these focus group meetings, and he said, you know, back in the day, we used to just call that whoring. And I said, not when wow. she's 13, chief. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, you know, by virtue of doing this and just putting out this information, and we I don't think we realized what we were doing at that time, we were starting to change hearts and minds. Yeah. Because what he was really saying was, oh my gosh, we were wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we thought it was. And it wasn't that.
2: Yes, and we would aggressively pursue these cases back then, too, before the laws were there. And even the joke around the office when the union was first getting up was that we were working trafficking cases before we had trafficking laws. But huh. back then, you got some guy that would be pimping out a 13-year-old girl in hotels. We could get him more time for taking pictures of that girl than for selling that girl for sex and having her raped for money over and over again. He'd get more time for the pictures because we just didn't have the laws then.
3: One of the things that we're talking about right now are the discrepancies between the way different code sections are perceived. So child rape, for instance, you're going to serve 100% of your time there. So you may see some of these cases being charged out as child rape instead of trafficking. In other words, I can go rape a 12-year-old one time and get 25 years and serve 25 years, but I can go sell this 12-year-old 30 times to 30 different people and not get the same penalties oh. right. because the statute is not listed as a predatory offense. We've got to be able to sync up because if you're just charging out child rape, then we really still don't understand how much trafficking is occurring in the state. We want to be able to mm-hmm. look to how many times we charged out 3913309, which is the sex trafficking statute. Okay. If hidden in the child rape numbers are trafficking cases, then we don't know how much is occurring here. Yeah,
0: right. We know that prostitution arrests have been down significantly since, what, 2014? Yes. So how does this relate to trafficking and all the legislation that's happened since then?
2: Well, it relates to trafficking specifically because of the shift in law enforcement. Trafficking is not a problem we can arrest our way out of. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of problems in law enforcement that we've realized that, hey, we cannot arrest our way out of this problem. But... Putting people in jail works. Putting people in jail, understand, is a deterrent. But in this subject specifically, you have to look at who you're putting in jail. It is of no benefit to keep arresting that drug addict over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Instead, let's get the drug supplier, the drug dealer. Maybe the drug addict does need to go to jail. Maybe he needs to go to rehab. But let's put him in a drug court that understands those things and has those resources. And then let's make that decision. As it relates to prostitution, there's prostitutes have been arrested multiple times, dozens and dozens of times, and it's a cycle there. Instead, in trafficking, we want to target the seller. We want to target Mm -hmm. the person that's exploiting that woman if that person does exist, if they're part of the equation, and reduce the demand by going after the John, specifically if that John, that buyer, is seeking to purchase sex from a child. Mm -hmm. That's the target. So I think as that gets pushed out and that solution is understood as being more productive than doing the same old, same old. You're going to see a reduction in the number of arrests for prostitution. And at the same time, you will see an increase in the number of arrests for human trafficking and promoting prostitution and patronizing the prostitution of a minor. You'll see that at the same time.
3: Mm -hmm. We return these results of the initial research back to the legislature in 2011, and we started passing laws. And the first two things we did were create the human trafficking hotline, and the second thing we did was decriminalize prostitution for minors. And we were one of the first five states in the nation to decriminalize prostitution for minors. That doesn't mean we made prostitution legal for minors. What it means is we're not arresting 13-year-olds anymore in this state for commercial sex acts a crime they couldn't legally engage in to begin with. The age of consent in the state of Tennessee is 18. Mm -hmm. So we were arresting kids, and and people go, really, we were arresting kids for prostitution? You betcha. Between Mm -hmm. 2009 and 2010, in one West Tennessee county, we arrested over 50 children for prostitution. Most were repeat offenders, and the average age was 15, which is interesting because the average age of our juvenile client at End Slavery Tennessee is 15. Mm -hmm. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children reports the average age of reported child trafficking victims nationally is 15. We sometimes use a number of 13 ish, 12, 13 ish as the average age of entry into sex trafficking, but the average age of a child trafficking victim is about 15 years old, which means that we have some that come in younger, some that come in older. For instance, uh, in 2019, the youngest client that we served at Inslavery, Tennessee was nine. And so we, we do see them that come in much younger than that, but our average age is, is, of course about fifteen. Okay. Let's talk
0: about trends in Tennessee specifically. We're kind of going down that road. What do we know about trafficking in this state in terms of city versus rural? How do those places look different? You know, we have a lot of rural communities, but
3: then we have big cities. So let me set this up for Jason. So we did a follow-up report. Any good research is going to have a follow-up piece Mm -hmm. of research. And so the follow-up to that was a report called The Geography of Trafficking in Tennessee. And we released it in 2013. And what we did with the Vanderbilt folks was take the numbers, the raw data that came in from the original survey, And we did analysis on the 25 counties in the state that were reporting the highest numbers of juvenile sex trafficking. So we were looking at those counties and saying, like, what's similar? What's different? We looked at median education levels. We looked at juvenile poverty rate levels. We looked at median household incomes. We looked at methamphetamine laboratory seizures. Understanding that drug-addicted parents are the most dangerous Mm -hmm. thing to a child. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so says Margie. So says Margie. Um, <laughs> and, and so we looked at all these comparables to see what was happening in those counties that would give rise to something like juvenile sex trafficking. The most significant, I think, county that's really sort of in your face about this is Lake County, which is in the upper northwest tip of the state. Lake County, the only thing in Lake County is Real Foot Lake. 16 to 25 cases of, of juvenile sex trafficking reported in that county over a 24-month period. And so that tells us a couple of really important things. One is that this is not an urban problem. Mm.
1: Right.
3: And the second thing is this is not a foreign national problem. That's another big myth is that this is th- this is a crime that only happens to foreign nationals, to people who are in the United States in an undocumented status. Mm. There's, mm-hmm. I think, a lot of misinformation about what is trafficking, what is smuggling. It gets mm-hmm. talked about a lot in the media right now. Mm-hmm. I think those two definitions are very different The easiest way to remember the difference is that trafficking is a crime against a person. Smuggling is a crime against the United States border. Now, are some people who are smuggled into the United States trafficked? Yes. But those are two totally separate things. And so when we think about rural trafficking and what that looks like, when I talk about those 25 counties in the state that reported the highest numbers of juvenile sex trafficking, we're talking about, the vast majority of those are rural counties, rural by anybody's Hmm. standards, like less than 50,000 population. One of the key pieces of information that stood out in Lake County, for instance, is that almost 46% of Lake County's children were living below the poverty level. So that's more than twice the national average. And so when you talk about poverty as it relates to trafficking – drug-addicted parents, median income or education levels, you know, all of those things can contribute to a, a scenario where a child could end up trafficked.
2: You also have to consider two other things. Number one, people that seek to exploit children because they're going to make money off of them or people that want to purchase sex from children. They will travel. Mm -hmm. they will move. They will move that kid from place to place, or they will go from one place to another to meet up. Is that kind of to to stay under the radar
0: or just to move them so that they can, are they moving so that they aren't seen or found, or are they moving because they're just moving, I want to put quotes around this, inventory. I don't want to use that word, but what is the purpose of that moving?
2: It's a few different reasons that someone might do that. One of them is that it's a bad idea from a pimp perspective, to pimp the girl out in the same town you picked her up in. Because, I mean, just think about it. She can mm-hmm. see somebody across the street that she knows mm-hmm. from you know, her high school principal or junior high school counselor, or something like that, and you're liable to bump into someone. So you want to move them from place to place. Uh, secondly, it's easier to control someone if they don't know where they're at. They don't have any resources. They can't walk home. They can't walk, oh, I know where the bus station is. I can walk across the street to the bus station or something. So when you move someone, away from everything they know. And it doesn't have to be a situation where you're moving someone from overseas Mm
3: -hmm. here
2: where they don't speak the language, where they don't have any resources, where they couldn't ask a person walking down the street for help because they don't speak the language. Is that a grip? Yes, it is. But it doesn't even have to be that extreme. It may just be that you move someone just away from what they know, get them out of the area, off their element. As far as someone looking to buy, someone looking to purchase, you don't want to go park your car in front of that hotel where someone yeah. from your church is going to ride by and see your car. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you want to experience something somewhere different, and so you're going to go to that different place. Or maybe you are in a rural community and you want to go, air quote shopping in a bigger city where you have what you may consider to be different choices. But ultimately, we know that these crimes are nomadic. They will move people. They will absolutely move people. Something else, you don't want to stay in one place too long, particularly if you have a victim that is being looked for. If you stay in one spot for too long, it's easy for somebody to catch up. I mean, that's not a a reach at all there. But we know that. We know that people will travel to have sex with folks. Uh, to travel to have sex with children, to travel to exploit people and to profit off of them. The key thing there is that it's not always going to be, oh, put a bag over some kid's head and took him off here and put him in the back of a van and drove him off to the big city and and, and all of that.
0: It's not kidnapping.
2: Yeah. Can that happen? Yes, it can happen. But it may not even look like that. It may look like, mm, mama don't want to pay the rent that month, so she's going to send the 14-year-old to go do the Watusi with the landlord,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. okay? Do you have sex in that situation? Yes, you do. Do you have a commodity in that situation? Yes, you do. Do you have a juvenile that's doing something in exchange for money? Yes, you do. That's a trafficking situation. And so in these smaller towns where people think that trafficking doesn't exist, it may be a situation where an adult is letting the dope dealer have a go at at a minor, their niece or their daughter in exchange for drugs, that could be a trafficking situation. Right. And so you see, real quick, that it's not limited just to a big city. Those events can happen anywhere.
0: And it's not limited to a child being kept in a basement where lots of people are coming through. You know, no. it could just be one
3: moment, is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Trafficking does not mean multiple. I think people have this idea that there has to be movement associated, like you have to cross county lines or cross state lines. Mm -hmm. And in the trafficking statute, transportation is one component that you can use to prove trafficking, but it's not necessary to prove the crime of trafficking. Mm -hmm. When I would train law enforcement, I'd say the, you know, eight-year-old that goes to sleep in her bed every single day can be trafficked from that same bed every single day, and she never moves. Mm -hmm. She never goes anywhere. Mm -hmm. This is really about the money and the act, especially when it comes to a juvenile. I want to ask a follow-up
1: question to you, Jason. You mentioned really a complex dynamic of people in a community where a family member might traffic a minor.
2: Yeah, we call that familial trafficking, yes.
1: Yes. So when you look to I- that identification, I mean, it's very complex, I think, the relationships there – what happens to the – it's a parent trafficking a child and the landlord. How do you make arrests? What does that look like? How are you going to approach that?
2: It depends on the situation. That's why one of our greatest partners in this is the Department of Children's Services. Mm. Those cases at the Department of Children's Services, they refer to them as Csim. That's commercial sexual exploitation of a minor. That's what they call it. And so we're roped into mm-hmm. and made aware of their CSIM cases. Okay. Um, if the complaint goes to them and gets tagged as CSIM, they make us aware of it so we can reach out and, f- and follow and see if those elements exist and if there's a charge that needs to happen, if that is determined uh, the and they should contact law enforcement partners on that, but we'll either system and contact that law enforcement partner or we will be that law enforcement partner for them. Understand that some of these cases require different types of expertise right. to pursue them. You need sometimes medical expertise at a level that may not be immediately available. Uh, Sometimes you have to have technical expertise to exploit uh, telephones and that sort of thing to get evidence out of those devices that may not immediately be available to some smaller departments, and that's a big thing that we do. It's a big focus of ours to come in and assist in those cases. But yeah, you have to be aware of it, work it, and understand that what you're looking at is a trafficking situation, because if not, again... Mother telling the daughter, you know, you go over there and do so and so with Mr. So and so so we don't have to pay the rent. You know, you go over there and you do it. She's 14 years old. Without understanding trafficking, that's going to get written off as a stat rape at best, okay? When in fact, somebody needs to recognize that that is a situation that the child, number one, does not need to be in and that for there sure. are people that are exploiting that child for money.
0: Well, and it brings two perpetrators instead of. If it's a rape case, wouldn't that just be one perpetrator
3: then?
2: Yes.
0: So then trafficking says there are two people responsible here. But
3: I think it's important to recognize that our state early, early on was willing to hold the buyer just as accountable as the seller. (laughs) Um, I think that's critically Important. important. That is both federal law and it is state law. And the word in the code that refers to a buyer originally said obtains, obtains for the purposes of... Okay. Yeah, commercial Sex Act. And that is the federal code as well. In 2013, we went to the legislature. I talked to some legislators, and I said, hey, let's add the word purchasing in, just so it's crystal clear mm. that we intend to prosecute buyers when it comes to children under the same code section. This is not stat rape. This is not solicitation, which is a C felony. This is an A or B felony, depending on how old the child is. Mm. So... It had already been affirmed in the federal appellate courts that obtains, refers to the buyer of a child. Okay. And the language used in the federal code. And so I think it's really clear and it's been affirmed that the buyer is also a trafficker, understanding that this is a supply and demand crime. If we didn't have a buyer, we wouldn't have a crime. Right. And so the only way we're going to get our arms around this is to really run hard at these buyers. And that's where we felt like at the TBI, I think all those years, and I'd love to sort of segue and talk about some of this the undercover operations yeah, that we ran, again. not the how of it, mm-hmm. those trade secrets. Trade secrets. <laughs> but but you know what we decided was our focus and why we went about it the way we went about it. And If you want to hear more about some of that, you can tune in to Season 1, Episode Mm -hmm, mm 7, and listen to some of the conversation about why the operations were named what they were and why this podcast is named what it is. But it seemed incredibly important, and it wasn't being done anywhere else in the United States. This sole focus on the buyers of children and commercial sex.
0: Hmm.
3: And you mentioned earlier that, you know, we've seen this drastic reduction in prostitution arrests, 65%. And that is a result of a lot of training, a lot of education, a lot of awareness. We didn't understand what domestic violence was 35 years ago. We thought it was a family matter.
0: Yeah.
3: We didn't understand how bad drunk driving was until MAD came along. And said, this is bad. People are getting killed. And so we have these paradigm shifts that occur in society every once in a while. And this is one of those. And at the time, our TBI director, Mark Gwynn, got out in public. And I I had gone to him in his office and I said, Director, you got to get out and talk about this. This cannot just be the angry woman out there Uh. shouting about this. Mm. Men have got to step up to the plate And really use strong Mm -hmm. language Mm -hmm. and hold other men accountable. And he got up in the next press conference and he said, we're going to run so many of these in so many different areas of the state for so long that every time you call one of these advertisements on the internet, I want you to wonder whether or not you're talking to a TBI agent. But that's a strong message. When you have people that have got something to lose, when you've got deacons in the church and CEOs and... Powerful people with great jobs and great families, they've got something to lose. Mm -hmm. And so if they think that there's an increased risk to be arrested for this crime, and if they are, they're going to lose everything, you may start to see this act as a deterrent. Without going into too
0: much detail, what does it look like to put one of these things together, and how are you doing this now?
2: A lot of planning, undercover operations, covert operations, tactical operations, if you can plan them and plan all the moving parts, then you can call audibles, then you can shift as necessary in the middle of it. What we're doing now that may be slightly different than what we're doing years ago is that instead of doing, we used to do not as many, but they would be very, very large. And now we're doing more of them everywhere. Okay. If that makes any sense. So in in, in, in a way we're increasing the volume. The reason we're doing it is, like she said, you have to attack this problem at all levels. If you look at it from a market aspect of it, I did drug investigations for years. So did Margie on on the drug war, so to speak. If you're going to fight that, it doesn't make any sense for us to roll up on a drug seller and a drug buyer and take their cocaine or take their meth and run back to the office and lock it up in the evidence room for a month and then take it out of the evidence room and then go back out to the worst street corner that we have in town and drop those drugs right there on the street and walk away from it. Yeah, That would be ridiculous. Nobody would, sure. everyone would agree that that's ridiculous. But that's how we've, in the past, we, law enforcement, we, the community at large has tried to solve this problem before the pushes that we have in a sense that if you understand that that Seller is the pimp, and that buyer is the John, and the product that is being sold is not heroin but is instead that human trafficking victim. It does not make any sense to take her, call her a prostitute, lock her up for a week, and then throw her back out there on the street with no resources Mm -hmm. for them to be put right back into the same situation again. Let's hold everybody accountable for this. Let's try to remove that product. OK, is that product going to be removed by incarceration? Mm. Let's get them to a group like in slavery and get them out of the market entirely. Mm. Let's put them into some sort of rehab. Let's put them in with an NGO that can make sure that they as a product are never introduced into NGO. the system again. A non-government organization. Okay. That's what we call you in slavery. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a non-government organization, a nonprofit, yeah, okay. someone who's going to help them. And then we will focus our law enforcement efforts as far as incarceration, as far as locking people up, as far as investigating and going after the bad guy and going after the purchasers and then also going after the sellers.
3: In 2015, the sort of the game changed again and we'd been passing a lot of laws. But the legislature gave the TBI four additional special agents to do mm-hmm. nothing but work trafficking. Oh, okay. And they passed a mandatory mandate for training for all law enforcement in the state that had to be conducted by the TBI. And that was really an important component of that bill because we wanted to make sure all law enforcement got trained to the same standard. They were all being told the same thing. We need to all be operating off the same sheet of music, there needs to be consistency in messaging from Memphis to Mountain City. And so the director called me up to his office at the time, and he said, this was 2015, May of 2015, and he said, Marge, great news. We got the human trafficking agents. I'm assigning them to you. Go get busy. I'm not going back (laughs) to the legislature next year and have anybody ask me what we did with those agents. Go get busy. And I was like, but, 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 and he was like, World don't want to hear about the baby pains, just want to see the baby. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so off we went. And I said, I'm going to need some help. And he said, do you want the field? Do you want the drugs? And I said, I'll take the drug division because that was where I came from mm-hmm. and is what I knew. I'd worked a lot of covert operation." type investigations from the drug unit. So I knew we were all going to speak the same language.
0: He was asking you, do you want
3: people from the drug unit? To help you. Gotcha. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. And so, because we had four agents and I said, I can't run a, a big covert operation with four people. And so we enlisted the services of the drug division, understanding that drugs was, is a large piece of the pie right. when it comes to trafficking. Many of these traffickers also are selling drugs. And so, again, I go back to season one, episode seven. Mm
0: -hmm. Seriously. And listen
3: to how we got started in Slavery Tennessee. It was an enormous help for them to be able to make available to us a survivor who was willing to talk to us and tell us how to go about doing this. We would not have been nearly as successful as early without that assistance. And so the other thing we did was... I said, hey, why don't y'all just come out and be in the hotel with
0: us
3: (laughs) in Slavery Tennessee. I said, why don't you just, I'll rent you a room. When we get women in that we suspect of being trafficking victims or involved in the commercial sex industry, we're just going to bring them to you. In the same building. Yeah, in the same hotel. How about we just walk them down the hall and give them to you and let you talk to them. And if they go with you, great. If they don't, okay. And so our objective was not to charge a bunch of women, was not a prostitution sting. This was really an effort to identify women who were being trafficked or being coerced or had been caught up in something that they really wanted and needed to get out of.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And even if, if we didn't convince them that day, or if slavery Tennessee didn't convince them that day, you're planting seeds, And so, over the course of the operations that we ran, about 35% of the women took services at the point of contact. So, they did leave within Slavery Tennessee. About 10 to 15% would call in the weeks or months after and said, Hey, is the offer still good? And we said, You know what? There's no expiration date on that Hmm. offer. Mm -hmm. And they would come into services. So, I think from that standpoint, it was enormously successful. In those few years that I was running the operations with the agents, We did two that were multi-state, and we partnered with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and we we went down to Chattanooga and did trafficking operations right there on the Georgia line. That worked out extremely well. We knew those folks. We'd worked with them before. GBI works very, very similarly to the TBI. And in one particular case, in a previous operation, we had run across a, a woman Her trafficker had been arrested and prosecuted in federal court or was going to be prosecuted in federal court in slavery, Tennessee, brought her up to the safe house here. Very dramatic story. I left the operation, came back to Nashville, and I had told um, Homeland Security, I said, I'm going to go by the safe house and see her. I just feel like we need to make contact with her. Like, we need to stay really in close contact with her. And so I went to the safe house and... The survivor from season one, episode seven, yeah. answered the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, you know, can I see such and such? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. She just um, went out on the back porch, smoke a cigarette. And so we both walked back there, and she wasn't there. Mm. And we kind of searched the house. She wasn't there. We made a block. She wasn't there. Mm. We jumped in my car and looked all around the area. She wasn't there. And we didn't see her for a year and a half. And the trafficker that she had been involved with was extraordinarily dangerous. Mm. And we were very, very concerned that something terrible had happened to her. And so a year and a half later, we were running another multi-state sting and GBI was over in Calhoun operating. We were in in Chattanooga and the special agent in charge called me, it was about two in the morning, they were still running, we we had shut it off. And I was in my hotel room, and Debbie called, and she said, we have this girl that we can't get identified, and we think she may be from Tennessee. Hmm. We think she's lying to us about her name. Can I text you a picture of her and see if you recognize her? And I said, sure. So she texted me the picture, and it was this girl. Wow. And I literally, like, tears started running hmm. down my face, because I we really thought she had probably been killed. But it was such, like, the relief that poured over me because mm. I was like, okay, we've got you. We've got you. And she came back into service. And that um, came from a multi-state That came operation. from a multi-state. And her trafficker was arrested, prosecuted, and convicted in federal court. And she is doing well to this day. Mm. But it was really touch and go. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
2: Involving an NGO, situations like that's critical. Once again, you want to remove, it sounds cold to look at it this way, but if you're going to affect this market, you have to remove the product out of that market. Yeah. So, yes, you're helping people. Yes, you're getting people off the street. Yes, you're getting victims out of situations where they're being victimized, but you're also pulling a resource out. People are making illegal money off of that asset. If you remove that asset... By placing that asset with an NGO to where they can get recovered and get out of the market, um, that affects the market a great yeah. deal. And that's our ultimate goal. Yeah. Dealing with other states, sure, we work with them very well. Shared Hope has rated Tennessee number one in its response to human trafficking mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. And I have said numerous times that the reason for that is because of communication and the relationships that we have that law enforcement has with NGOs and with our Department of Children's Services. Yeah. So we knocked those barriers down a long time ago.
1: I, I wondered, actually I had this question a little bit earlier, we were not always number one. <laughs> we came up from a, probably about the
3: time that you can, started conducting this survey 2012, I think, was the first time they released a report card for each state. Yeah, Um, I think that's right. Our first grade was a 73, which doesn't sound great, but there were only, I think, five or six states that had higher grades than we did, and nobody had an A. And Mm. so, by by 2014, I think we were at an A grade, and by about 2017, I think we were the top state in the nation. And three of the last four years that they gave grades, we were the number one state in the nation. They retooled their rubric in 2020, and so they released a new sort of set of guidelines because, like anything, we got into this, and we made a lot of progress, we learned a lot, and now we know that we need to make some more changes. People are probably thinking, good grief, you've had 10 years to make changes to the law. Why are you still making changes to the law? Well because we thought something sounded good at the time, and then we needed to change it. Plus, criminals adapt to law enforcement strategies and tactics. They also are constantly looking at how they can skirt the law. And so we have to continue to tweak changes to policy and law in order to be able to charge people who are exploiting women and girls. And I would say that Absolutely, there are boys and men who are being exploited through trafficking. We don't know a good number on that. NECMAC will estimate 15, 20% are boys, but it certainly is a crime that disproportionately impacts girls. You know, I think that's the secret sauce, is what you're talking about. How did we get to be number one? I mean,
1: how do you do that? Well, it's exactly right it's communication, it's collaboration, it's training together and learning together and growing together to be better at this. Our statistics about people that stay in our program or come back to our program, at least within Slavery Tennessee, when you said 35% accepted the offer right away, that is remarkable. And it's remarkable because that just doesn't usually happen off the street. It takes a long time. And it just speaks to the, I'm going to say it again, the secret sauce of why this works. And to be honest, I would love, and I think you would agree, we want all states to be number one. We don't yes. want to just stay here by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Let's bring them all in. Mm-hmm. Right. And and <laughs>
2: to a large extent, too, speaking to the law enforcement, to the other NGOs, to the prosecutors, to DCS, you got to drop the ego. Mm-hmm. You know, it's real yes, easy sir. for it, for cops to sit here all day long and complain about, well, the darn DCS workers did this and they did that and uh-huh. blah, 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 and fuss and complain about them. But if you've got the DCS area supervisor's name and phone number on the speed dial, That's it. You you, you don't have that, I'm going to sit here and fuss and complain excuses anymore. When I can pick up the phone and call Director of Victim Services at this NGO that quick Uh, from the street, from the side of the road with no problem, with no headache, with no red tape, when you can make those things happen and not worry about who's going to get the headlines, who's going to make an arrest, what's going to happen to somebody— everybody wants in on this. Everybody understands this. this is a good fight. Mm. I've been in law enforcement a long time. I've put people in jail for a lot of things in that whole TCA code. This is good work. This is the work that folks want to do. This is the work that you can look back there and say, hey, I made a difference. And it's hard because as you look back in law enforcement, it's like, hey, yeah, I put folks in jail, but Did I just roll through and just make life hard on people that I put in jail? No. Some of those people you put in jail, they need to go to jail. But when you can do that and look over here and say, that person is getting a better life right now because of the efforts of the unit that I was a part of, that makes a difference. And as we go out and work with other officers and other agencies and stings and whatnot, they want to be part of that. They understand that. They're like, hey, I I want to make a difference too in that part.
3: When I first started training a lot of the TBI agents, 2013, 2014, 2015, invariably every time I went out and trained around the state with TBI folks, the agents would line up afterwards and they'd say, I'll volunteer. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I had one say, I'll put off retirement for a year if I can go out and do this. It's not going to be a hard sell to try to convince agents and police officers, hey, let's go out and arrest a bunch of men who are paying to have sex with kids. Mm. They'll like, sign me up. I'm ready to go. Um, for and free. For free. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll do it on my off time. Mm-hmm. It just, it feels great. And when, you, when you're running an op and a child gets delivered to you, the first time that happened was we were running an op down in Jackson. And I think the oxygen just got sucked out of the house that we were operating out of. I mean, when this little girl walked in, we there was just this collective, <gasps> you know, because she looked so young. Oh and um, it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult when children are brought into this. And Jason has recovered some. I've recovered some. We had a deal. We were trying to recover a couple of juveniles in Nashville, and— Jason was going to do the in person undercover. I was actually the one doing the texting on the phone. And we suspected there was one juvenile in there, and there ended up being two. Mm-hmm. And many times they are so sort of stunned that there's no reaction. There's a very flat affect, mm-hmm. but not in that particular case. She was, I think, pretty glad to see you.
2: Oh, absolutely. Like right off. We do with victims of a lot of different crimes. Domestic violence again is a good example. Domestic violence victims will not self-identify as a victim. Right. You can talk to a domestic violence victim and she might say, Oh, she's sitting there with a bloody nose and a black eye, and she'll say, No, detective, it's my fault. Yeah. It's my fault I'm here because I didn't keep the casserole warm. It's my fault wait, no, you're a domestic violence victim. And she'll say, no, no, it's my fault because I should have had the casserole warm. So they won't identify as a victim. And human trafficking victims very often may be the same way. Yeah. But this particular one was not. They were glad to see us.
3: And then the Strengthening Families Act, that's a, a federal statute that provides a lot of funding and direct assistance to departments of children's services, gets reauthorized by the U.S. Congress every so often. And about five years ago, the reauthorization mandated a planned response by family and children's service agencies in the United States to trafficking. And so part of that is a mandatory report to law enforcement, because a lot of the DCSs around the country were not reporting trafficking cases to law enforcement. I don't blame them. If you haven't decriminalized prostitution for minors, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're just going to come in and arrest your victim. Yeah, So I'm not throwing stones at the DCSs of the world at all. Totally understand why that was happening. But part of that Strengthening Families Act reauthorization included a mandatory report to law enforcement. Mm. And so the system that we worked out in the state of Tennessee was that DCS would call the hotline, that that would be the mandatory report to law enforcement. And then the TBI, again, understanding sort of which agencies – And jurisdictions had the capacity to investigate these kinds of crimes and which ones might need a little help, could farm these cases out or these complaints out or keep some that they knew they needed to investigate themselves.
1: I want to say something else about Jason's talking about all the data that you collect, all of the evidence that you collect, and what that does really to help the victim ultimately too in a case. If a victim has to testify in court, that's re-traumatizing And the more
3: evidence you have that makes it so that the victim isn't the only— It corroborates the victim's statement.
1: Yeah. So PYWI, this partnership works so well because our case coordinators will walk through the court system with the survivors. And when there's so much evidence that's collected and there and available, you know, there's just less less need for them to have to give all that story. Well, they still have to
2: take their story, but I think a part of it, too, is that they're like, hey, someone believes me. Yeah. what has happened, you know, people are talking about this sounds like something from television or, you know, they're saying, hey, why'd you do this or why'd you do that? Or they can't believe that I was taken from here to this point to that point, but hey, they believe me.
3: We had one recently and the federal trial ended in a conviction. The victim was very young. She was 12 at the time that she was recovered. I was at TBI when this case started and I supervised it. And what was interesting is not only did the initial victim come here, but one of the witnesses who had also been a trafficking victim, we had served as well. And so we ended up providing assistance to both the original victim as well as a witness in the case. And we're able to really assist in getting her to and from court and, you know, and helping her as well. Even if you're just a witness to the case, that's still very traumatic.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right.
3: So in all your years of experience, I want to end this conversation
0: here. How do you think we can best combat this issue from a government standpoint but then also from a community standpoint? How do we work to end this crime?
2: Understand first that this crime is as old as time. few things are more annoying to me in this than people thinking, you know, hey, this new thing you're calling trafficking now. You no, know, I've got books on trafficking that were written – They're talking about the same things that we're talking about today, the same issues we're talking about today. It was just called something different, and these books were written in 1910, trafficking the movement of people, exploiting people, whether you're doing it in a time in history when the government says it's legal and Mm. it is therefore slavery— Or indentured servitude or serfdom or whether it's a time in history where the government says hey it is not legal to exploit people like that in which case it is trafficking regardless it's wrong what you have to have to make a change is a cross the board zero tolerance for it at all levels and everyone understands it and agrees Uh, like Margie brought up we saw it with domestic violence there was a time 30 years ago where hey Police go out there and knock on the door and say, what's going on? And the big drunk guy would just look over and say, well, she just tripped and fell. And law enforcement back then, there's a good chance they'd have walked away from that situation. But now we understand the problem. Mm -hmm. We understand the problems of domestic violence. We've got domestic violence courts, domestic violence prosecutors. We understand that you can't walk away from that situation and you don't have to look real far to see that there's not a tolerance for that. You know, your used to be no one's business if your favorite celebrity or your favorite idolized athlete put his hands on his girlfriend in a hotel. That's something that would have just been brushed under the radar. Now they're going to not be playing with that ball anymore and they're going to lose those endorsements Mm -hmm. very, very quickly. Everyone understands that there is no tolerance for that. There needs to be a absolute zero tolerance for this, and that will make the difference across the board and understanding it, uh, understanding the nuances of it and understanding that these are victims and understanding that in this market, they are a product and that you have to attack all aspects of it, the buying of that product, the selling of that product, and you have to remove that product from the market. Again, not to sound brutal when I say remove that product sure. from the market because I'm talking about taking a person from that market. But in order to do that, you have to introduce them to and get them the help that they need from organizations like in Slavery.
3: I think education around the buyers is still critically important. So understanding that these are not nice people who just made a mistake and we don't want to ruin their lives. Mm that a person seeking to pay for sex with a child is a predator. And I don't care what they've made you think they are in their other life, the other life that they're living, their ability to live a dual life, because it is a dual life. If you've got somebody that's seeking to have sex with a child and is also running a business and is married with two children and one and a half dogs and whatever, these are not nice people. These are predatory people, and we need to not shy away from calling them what they are and holding them accountable for what they do. And when a child is unable to speak for themselves, the NGOs and the government must be able to speak for them. Hmm. We have to protect our kids. Yeah, That's what we have to do. We're either going to protect kids in this state or we're not. Hmm. That is the decision before us today.
0: In Slavery, Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of Someone Like Me. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline, Stacey Elliott, and Marissa Brunel. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is our engineer, and original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening.